0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Alright, once again, good afternoon everyone. It's it's always a privilege to look into God's Word together because God's Word is the truth that brings light and strength to us. Um, let's take this time and commit ourselves to God as we jump into Romans 7. Father, we thank you for this passage. It is true, and it's a passage that um, speaks about our lives. But we pray, God, today that your Holy Spirit will work with us, work in us, that you engage our mind, that we may understand, and to wrestle with your truth. We pray that your Spirit will work in our hearts, that it will impact um, and transform us, and you will strengthen our hands, that we may live rightly for you. Priorities and ask for the glory of Christ. Amen. Now, when I was in the first year of my junior college, I I signed up to serve in their Christian Fellowship, and I attached to my application a, a photo, a old photo of mine, which um was this abang-looking guy with with quite uncut hair for months. Um, I was trying to say that. I was trying to save money, but perhaps I was hoping to look cool. It didn't work. And one of the teachers in charge of the Christian Fellowship was the Discipline Mistress of my junior college. Um, some of you are from that college. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Uh, she was unimpressed. And she made it a point that I knew that she was unimpressed before the interview um, of the committee. And just at the 11th hour, I changed my mind, decided to go and get a haircut to look a bit smarter. And when I appear in front of her, she was impressed. Because here is here is the discipline mistress' idea, or perhaps rightly so, that a Christian should look um, neat uh, and uh, tidy and, and well in, in college because they represent Christianity. And that was the unspoken law that we should look are uh, prim and proper. Well, I, I didn't struggle very hard with that since then because one thing, there's no point in struggling, and the other thing, the Eagles Eye is behind me, and they just made me the president of the Christian Fellowship, so I have to um, do what is right. So it was, it was all good until I graduated, and so did the discipline mistress. She left the college. Apparently, I think she was going to Bible College. But then we we're good friends. She invited our committee to her house. We went to her house and when she opened her door, her flat, and gave us a big smile, my jaw almost dropped because there was this lady with purple hair. It, it was not even highlighting, it was like purple. And she just smiled at me and said, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. <laughs> That's what happens when the discipline mistress is set free from the rules and regulations that are required of the teachers decades ago. The rules were good. It kept people under order, but it didn't change the hearts. It didn't change what people desire. And when the opportunity comes, it springs out. Now, what about Christians? What about you and I? What is the relationship between God's people and God's law now that we are set free by Christ Jesus? Well, as we come to Romans 7, we land on the very topic of the Old Testament law. And Christians, what exactly is the relationship between Christians and the law when we believe in Jesus? Well, this is the topic of Romans 7. In fact, Paul will let us into his own inner life in Romans 7 to help us understand the effects of law On our lives, how the law is good, but yet powerless to deal with sins of human. So Paul in Romans 7, he'll give us an overview from verses 1 to 6 of how being dead to law and being alive to Christ mean. And then he'll move on to two parts of his life as an example, but also for us from verse 7 to 13, how the law was good, but he or we are the problem. But after becoming a Christian from 1425, how the law is good, but sin is still a problem. So this is how the map of Romans 7 is going to be as we dig into it. In fact, let us begin by looking at the first verse of Romans 1 as we look at this first section. Let me read, um, part of Romans 7 verse 1 for us. If you have a bulletin, it'd be great to keep it open because I'll, I'll read quite a fair bit from there. Verse one: Do you not know, brothers and sisters? Well, he he was speaking to Christians that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. <laughs> so, like like a good narrator, Paul declares right at the start the key to understanding our Christian life, and the key is this, right in verse one is, and, and let me paraphrase the 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 portion. He says we are released. From the law's authority, where we died to law, and we live in Christ. That's what he's going to unpack in this whole section: that we are released from law's authority, where we died to law, and we're alive in Christ. Because now Paul is not speaking to passersby who just walk past and is trying to say this; he's speaking to those who are familiar with the Old Testament laws. It could be the Jews. It, but it doesn't have to be Jews. It could be the Gentiles who are familiar with scriptures. And to make this point clear, Paul uses the example of law on marriages. And let me read to you verse 2 to 3. This is an example that he gave. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, when Paul gives verse 2 and 3, he is not giving an instruction about marriage and divorce, but rather he is taking a well-understood truth that's already being applied in their time regarding the law of marriage to describe our relationship with God's law. He likens our relationship with God's law as a marriage. And that's his example. So this is his example that the, the Romans would have understood. That a married couple, they are legally bound to each other as long as both, both are alive. But when one when death intervenes in that marriage, or that relationship, when death intervenes and one party dies, that law of marriage ends. Because death have come in. In fact, we have heard this in Christian vows. If you have been to enough weddings, they will give all the promises, but they will end till death do us part. Because all their vows can only hold as long as both parties are alive. And when one dies, it breaks the last straw of that law upon their marriage. And if that happens, a new marriage or a new relationship is allowed because that ends the first. So this is what happens when you and I, when we are united with Jesus, when Jesus um, died on the cross, that we also died as well. When Jesus died on the cross, that we too died to the law. So our marriage to law, Paul is explaining ends with our death in Jesus when we die with Him on the cross. That's what Paul is bringing out regarding our relationship with the law. But he has more to add. He has a second layer to add to it, which is this. When Jesus rose from the dead, that we too rise into new life and we enter into a new marriage, a new relationship with Jesus Christ. So Christians are depicted this way, that we were a bride to the law, But when we die, we are released from this. And when we have a new life, we are married to Christ. That's Paul's point from verse 1 to verse 3. And this new union with Christ is eternal. And because it's eternal, this union with Christ enables us to bear eternal fruits. Fruits for God. Something that we could never have done before we are married to Christ and we we were still married to the law. In the past, we have a very different condition before we become a Christian, where we are married to the law. Listen to how uh, we used to live or what our life looks like before believing in Jesus. It's in verse 5. Look at verse 5 as I read it for us. For when we are in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so we bore fruit for death. In our previous marriage Paul puts it this way that we were terrible spouse. to the Lord we were terrible spouse. We were in the realm of the flesh, that is, we were completely ruled by our human, fallen human nature, and we have sinful passions just in us waiting to be awakened. And when we get in contact with the law, our sinful passion will spring to life and you bring death. To us, now I've I've got this article that I saw at BBC last year that to share with you what what it looks like. Um, do I have it there? It's an article by BBC last year, and its header is it this: "There are diseases hidden hidden in ice, and they are waking up." You, you you can know global warming is a big topic. Then there are diseases hidden in ice, and they are waking up. And here's a snippet. Let me read this. It says, in in August 2016, in a remote corner of the Siberian tundra, um, a place, there was a 12-year-old boy who died. And then at least 20 people were hospitalized after being infected by anthrax. And try to figure out, and the theory was that over 75 years ago, there was this reindeer infected with anthrax, died, and his frozen carcass were trapped under a layer of the frozen soil known as the primafrost. And that is stayed until the heat wave of the summer of 2016 came in and those um anthrax um came about and the people were affected by it. <laughs> so here's an example and, and here's actually how it looks like our previous marriage to law is like marrying to global warming. That the law only awakens the sinful passion in us when when law comes in contact with us, it awakens And it brings death. So there's this toxic combination that exists between us when we are bound to the law. But when we die to Christ, when we die in Christ, we are set free from this relationship because all who are in Christ are given a new life and a new marriage. And that's why verse 6b puts it this way that Christians, we serve in a new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code, which means the law. Now, Paul says Christians no longer live under the law, but serve in a new way that's activated by the Spirit. So, so that is the overview from verse one to, to verse six. But now, for now, we need to know as well that Paul's argument from verse chapter seven, you actually follow through to Romans eight over the next two weeks about life in Grace and in spirit. But to see how necessary this new way of life is, Paul needs to show how powerless the old way of life actually is and how necessary and desperate this new life that we have. Because until we see how powerless us and law are by ourselves, we can't see how precious and how powerful the grace of God in Christ works in us. And so we'll have to be patient to see the whole picture over this week and the next two weeks up to Romans 8. But for now, we need to discuss about the law because if you are a Roman, by now you will have, if there's Q&A, they'll be raising a hand, waving. Or if not, they're throwing things out because people will be angry as Paul speaks about this. Because we see, we see in verse 7, look at it. What shall we say then is the law? Sinful. Why, why does Paul bring up this question? Because if you're a Jew or if you're somewhat familiar with the law, this is what you have always understood. God's law is good. And God's law is from God. And we should honor is it. the highest thing. In fact, the, the law of God is what differentiates God's people and the rest of the world. So God's law is good and God's people is linked to the law. But up till now, Paul has not said anything very good about the law. And their question is, so is the law sinful? Well, Paul wants to clarify this out. And his point is, the law is not bad. In fact, the law is good. So listen to verse 7 again as as I read his answer in. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. And here is Paul's point from verse 7 to 13. The law is good. But we are the problem. No, a phrase goes like this. I hope you have not been no have said this to you, but the phrase goes like this. It's not you. It's me. I hope you have not have someone say that to you. No, our relationship you're you're not the problem. I am the problem. No, when this statement comes, it's kind of almost the end of everything because we want to break up. It's not your problem. It's mine. Here's Paul's point. It's not Law is not your problem that things didn't work out between you and me. I am the problem. And in fact, we are the problem. And so Paul asked that hypothetical question, am I trying to say the law is evil? I am not. Certainly not. And to drive that point, Paul is going to use himself Exact an example to his listeners. Now we know Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. If a Pharisee of his time tried to point faults at Paul, they're going to have a really hard time because on the outward, he's really good. He's blameless almost, at least on the surface. But here's what Paul found out when he came in contact with the Lord. Look at verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I, Paul, would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Now on the outside, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul is... It's hard to find fault in him. But Paul knew that he was not that perfect on the inside. For right at the end of the Ten Commandments comes a command that challenges the heart. And the command says, you shall not covet. And the moment that comes in, Paul reveals here that that good command is like the heat that awakens the sin in him and it produced every kind of coveting. The sin seized in him the opportunity provided by the covenant uh, by the commandment and produced all kinds of coveting. Now before the law came, Paul might have gotten away blissfully, but when he came into contact with God's law, you shall covet the sin in him awakens to the heat of the summer uh, wave. Now he didn't elaborate what kind of coveting he has, whether it's fame, praise, honor. Something else. He didn't elaborate, but Paul recognizes and he puts a point that he was struggling with coveting. Now imagine with me a man or a woman or a woman single. He or she loves to flirt, likes to flirt with uh, opposite gender or any genders. Um, but he or she gets away blissfully until the day he or she decides to get married on their wedding day. They made a vow. I'll give up all the others and forsake all others for you. And from that day on, as he moved forward, every time when he quarrels with his wife or his husband, sin comes knocking again. Say, this person is pretty nice. They appreciate you for who you are. Well, you look much better to all the other people than your husband and your wife. And sin will take the opportunity that you shall give up all others to reveal that you have been a sinner all this time. What you think you could have gotten away, it just makes clear to you that you are just a sinner. Now this week, I was uh, going to a parents' meeting at my kids' um, school, and my son was quite proud. He showed me around his school. He brought me to the school library. It was closed. So we stood outside, and we were just looking around. And I said, look, I saw this panel, Met plenty of these panels, uh, glass panels, with this sign that says, Do not tap the glass. You know, we see glass panels every day. You see it in shopping center. You see it in your office. Nobody's bothered with glass panels. But that day when I saw the panel, I just wondered, uh, that's my son's shadow at me. I was was just wanting to touch the, the glass a little bit. And I wonder how many people feel like tapping it because there was just this sign that says, you shall not tap. Well, perhaps this window doesn't, attract you at all, you'll say, Andrew, you're just being silly, but perhaps there are other windows that attracts you, those fancy, luxurious shops, those restaurants you pass by in the shopping mall, those adverts around us, behind the glass, calling out to us to have what those famous people or those beautiful people have, just come in, have this, you have what I have. Why did Paul bring out coveting? Perhaps it was the very fundamental sin that brings out, do the, do the law springs sinful passions to you? As we kind of pause here for a moment, are there times where things that comes to you that reminds you that you are coveting? Or are there other commands that when the law comes to you and you start to realize that you want to do the very thing, you do not want to do. And here's my little jingles, or whatever you call it. It says, this, this is what I think, The more law rings, the more sin springs. And the more death clings. That's Paul's experience. The more the law rings out, the more the sin springs out of him. And the more death clings on to him. That's why Paul says in verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. It's not you, law. You are good. It's me, Paul. Your presence awakens my sin, and it bears the fruit of death in me. And so verse 10, he says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In fact, Paul says it twice, verse 8, verse 11, he says, sin seizes opportunity that commandments allows and cause him to fall. In fact, this is not just Paul's problem because this is a problem from the very first day man came in contact with sin. In fact, this is the very story of Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve now, verse 11 paints for us how sin entered <laughs> our world in Adam and Eve. Now, all was good, they were well, they were alive, until God says, You shall not eat this fruit. And then suddenly, the serpent sin creeps in to deceive Adam and Eve. And all of a sudden, I- imagine Adam and Eve were looking at the guy, everything suddenly starts to look dull. The sun seems to be dim every other tree that they can eat, the fruits that they can enjoy, even the tree of life start to look beam. And there's one tree that is beaming at them. The tree that God says you shall not eat. And they went and they ate. <laughs> and so Paul affirms in verse 12. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is good. Says Paul. But it is powerless to say because it, it is being abused by sin. In fact, Christopher Ash puts it well and I'll just quote him on this. He says this, the law exposes sin, but sin in turns exploits the law. The law exposes sin, but sin in turns exploits the law. And dear friends, this exposing and this exploiting is our human experience. And it's been our history. And if Jesus does not save us, sin will continue to use what is good to bring about our death. And the law reveals how utterly sinful sin is. Now, that was how Paul explains what life was like before he became a Christian, but how about life after he becomes a Christian? Does it become a bed of roses? If you and I have been Christian for more than 24 hours, we start to realize, perhaps not. We quickly realize that although sin's power of death has been removed, but the voice of sin still haunts, and often very loudly and relentlessly. So it's like Gollum in Lord of the Rings who jumps around Frodo, trying to lure him and steer him off track. Sometimes he sounds like a smiggle, which sounds better. Sometimes he sounds like Gollum, which has the evil intent. It is relentless on Frodo. Well, if, if Lord of the Rings is... Kind of an old classic for you Eddie. Forget what I say about this example. But look at Paul's point as it brings to our 14 to 25. Hear how Paul moves on to speak about the ongoing struggle of a Christian, the relentless voice of sin. Because though the power of sin to kill us is removed, our struggle with sin's desire to abuse the law will continue on this side of life until Christ return. In fact, the struggle with sin is so much a part of Christian reality that you have noticed Paul's letters in the rest of the New Testament is always reminding Christians that we need to persevere, we need to resist sin, and we need to look forward to what we have and to depend on God for strength. So before we dig into this part of 14 to 25, I just want to say briefly um that verses 14 to 25 is one of the most argued uh, and contentious passage uh, in the whole of Romans. Uh, you could disagree with me at the end of this, uh, but I just put it out of point. It's, it's, been, con- it's been a, a contentious passage for the last 2,000 years, and I'm not going to say that this is the last word that I have. Some have argued that verse 14 to 25, it is about Paul being the Christian. Some argue 14 to 25 is about Paul when he was not a Christian. Some say 14 to 25 is about Paul in between Christian and non-Christian. So these are the three arguments that have been around. I'm going to hold a view of that he is a Christian. Uh, That's my conviction. For now, I'll I'll trade behind Luther and Calvin. Um, You can find others. But there are really good scholars who have different views. But I think this is... This is about him being a Christian, and I want to point a few things for us uh, before I move in further on it. If this is too technical for you, you can fall asleep until uh, two and a half minutes, and I'll call you back. But if you follow along, uh, it will help as we look at the passage that you'll be convinced that Paul is telling us the experience so that we can understand our own. So here are a few examples the point that he wants to bring out. The first one is, from verse 14 to 25, you have to look at your passage. It's, it's written in present tense, compared to 7 to 14, written in the past tense. So there's this two portion, 14 to 25 in present tense, compared to 7 to 11. And it's most natural to read it the way Paul writes it. His past life in 7 to 14, written in past tense. His present life, 14 to 25, written in present tense which is intending to show us how Paul, even as he becomes a Christian, he's not perfect. And this is crucial because being Christian doesn't automatically help us be perfect against struggles. Not even for Paul. And that makes us wait even more earnestly for our resurrected body. And Paul, the best amongst us, puts himself out there To show his readers to the Romans that this is a struggle. But it's more than just the tenses. Another point Paul speaks about as he does, he repeatedly shows how he wants to do God's will from um, this passage. He speaks about, he speaks as one who has already changed his loyalty to, to God and to Christ. Look at verse 18. For I have desired to do what is good. He says, verse 22, in my inner being I delight in God's law. Twenty-five, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there is an internal war. That's not mentioned in seven to eleven, but it is a big thing in fourteen to twenty-five. There's an internal war that's going on in him, his deeper self, waging war against the sin which is lurking in him. We see this repeated content attention from fourteen and twenty-five. For example, in verse twenty. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. But it's sin living in me that does it. Ongoing, again and again, he's explaining the tension that he has. And most helpfully at the end, is in verse 25, where he calls upon Jesus Christ as his Lord, as he fights this battle. When he says, verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself in my mind and a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. <laughs> so I think this is how Paul unpacks how the struggle with sin is part of the Christian reality. So there we have it. If you're dozing off for two and a half minutes, you can come back here as we move on. And I think this is what Paul is saying. In his past life, he says to the law, it's not you, it's me. But in his Christian present, he says to law, it's not me, it's sin. So back in 7 to 11, Paul says, the law was good, I'm the problem, we are the problem. From 14 to 25, Paul says, the law is good, sin is the problem. So dear friends, if we have been Christians for a while, it should not surprise us that our Christian life has a big struggle. As we hear God's word taught, as we want to live in obedience, we will at various occasions land on our knees crying to God, Oh God, what a wretched man or woman I am. How I've longed to love you, I just failed. And Paul will say, that's true. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. So as a slave to sin. You no, know, the law is good, it's spiritual, but I cannot keep it fully as Jesus does. You no, know, yes, I've declared right with God. I'm living, I want to live a life that's right before God. Not to earn salvation, but because I love God. I've been given a new heart, but I'm not completely like our resurrected Jesus yet. My body still struggles to catch up, to keep in step with the good law, which is spiritual. My actions in responding to sin is reflecting That there are times where I'm very unspiritual. So now if believing in Jesus, if for a moment as a Christian we think believing in Jesus is giving us a boost to keep the law well enough to become saved, we're in big trouble. Because it is by grace that we are saved. It's not by God's grace that we can become better to keep the law and be saved. In fact, verse 15 sixteen is a burst of outcry that we should find familiar in our own Christian journey that urged us to cry to God for forgiveness because there is the innermost being in us that still lament that we are such poor in spirit, kingdom people. And so what Paul says verse 15 to eighteen. Let me read this for us. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good inside itself does not do what I mean. That is in my sinful nature. No difference. If, if you're a Christian, I wonder how you feel. Have you ever felt like this? In the morning... You woke up feeling great. You say a morning prayer. You say, dear God, today I want to live rightly for you. I'll not gossip. I'll refuse to speak badly about my colleagues. I've arranged to meet this friend for lunch. I'm going to share the gospel with him or her. I'll not lust. I'll not covet for this, for that. I'll read my Bible. I'll find my contentment in my Lord Jesus Christ. You said that prayer with all your heart when you woke up on a Monday morning after Sunday. You went to work. The day passed. By the time you land on your bed at 11pm, still in your work clothes, your prayer goes like this. Father, forgive me. I have just failed. Again, I failed to talk about Jesus. I ended up gossiping during lunch. I envied and coveted when my friends spoke about things. And I start to think that I was underpaid for this job. I kept quiet when I should have spoken. I spoke when I should have bit my tongue. God, what a wretched man I am. Father, forgive me, for I know not what I am doing. And Paul's words from 15 to 18 flows in. No, friends, as we pause here for a moment, I I just want us to just pause and think about Our own prayers, those prayers that you have prayed with all your heart to God, that you want to be a better Christian. Have you had those? Have you had those prayers where you are kneeling down before God and says, God, when will Christ return? When will I have the complete transformed body? And sometimes we even wonder if you're a Christian when we struggle with that tension in life. What's your experience with sin? What's your experience when you pray and you want to be like Christ? And sin comes along and knocks relentlessly at you. We have all different struggles with sin. Paul was coveting but he makes a point. He didn't mention what it is. But it's probably a good reason why he didn't. Because we can think of our own struggles. Now, do we desire to share the gospel with people? To love more, um, sacrificially to give generously, to read the Bible, to pray, uh, to, to obey God, to do all the good that God uh, wants us and we desire. But at times we fail. You know, how often I step to grab taxi and I pray, God, give me a lead into this conversation so that I can share the gospel and preach the good news. But how many times? And it's more often than not. Five minutes into the journey, they were preaching to me about the holidays, about the gossips, about the things that are unhappy. I started wondering, yeah, life is tough. And I started to nod my head, whether consciously or unconsciously. And I step out of the taxi and say, God, who was the preacher? How about the evil we do not want to do, but we keep doing? Have you and I prayed and repent of various sins only to have the sin Coming back and springing back to ask, coveting discontentment, lust, bitterness, anger, greed, gossips, the tension with sin that causes us to fall on our knees in tears for God's forgiveness. The law of God is so good, but sin always tries to abuse it. <laughs> Paul says it's not him but the sin living in him, since power to bring death is dealt with, since voice is very much alive. And so here is Paul's summary of Christian life using himself as an example for the Roman Christians, for us. And this is verse 21 to 23. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. The day will come, when all Christians, brothers and sisters, that we will be transformed. That it will no longer be a struggle to enjoy obeying God's law. It will be just natural. It will just be easy. But the day is not here yet. The day of struggle is still real because we are saved, but there's still a battle So dear friends, this is the realistic understanding of the struggles Christians have. And that we can truly appreciate the law is good. And then we can appreciate even further that we are not married to the law, but we are married to Christ. And we live in His grace. And because the law is good, but yet in marrying Christ is the grace that saves us. But friends, I just want to bring up one point here before we almost reach the end. There's this irony that goes on. That this very tension that Christians struggles with is actually a good thing. This struggle that we have actually reveals that we are Christians. I just want to pause here and think a little bit. It is having this struggle that makes us a bit more aware that actually we are Christians. A lecturer once said this, and I thought it was brilliant. He said this, and to put struggles with sin in perspective, he says, Temptations is for real Christians. Temptations is for real Christians. Meaning, if you're not a Christian, sin is not a temptation to you. If holiness is not your issue, then lust is not your issue. If the contentment in God is not your agenda, coveting is not a temptation. Go ahead, covet, because that's where you will strive in life. Isn't that true? Temptation is for real Christians. The tension, the struggle are for those who want and love God's law. And that becomes attention. And we turn to God for grace. And we long for our hope. So how does Paul end Romans 7? He ends with 24, 25. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And so even as we close here is Paul's point. The law is good, but it's never meant to make us good. It directs us to the grace of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of that that we will press on with a present war between our mind our deepest desire to obey God and sin that's always shouting, threatening, tempting to us. And it is this that we will turn to grace. And we will hear more of that in the next two weeks. In Christ the day will come we will fully rejoice when sinful nature is out of the picture. But now we depend on Christ whom we are married to. Because it is in His grace that we can be saved and we can be rejoicing for our future. Let's pray at this time and then we'll have some time for Q&A to engage on this. Father, how good is your law? How helpful it is to know that Christians, we do struggle. We do not become perfect like Christ on this side of life. And thank you that you show us the law is good but it's in Jesus that we are saved. Help us to recognize the real struggle of sin and help us to realize how important it is for us to cling to Christ. Because it is in Him that we will have complete assurance and not on the law. In His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.